The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. This morning in Morning Devotions, we continue our series where we invited several seniors, graduating seniors, to come bring the word to us. So today we have Matthew Day. So Matthew, come bring us God's word. I do apologize in advance. I'm not really feeling that well this morning. I will, however, do the best that I can. If you will open with me to the book of Revelation, um, chapter 14. Verse 12. This is God's word. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is God's word. Join me now in prayer. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for sending Christ to redeem for yourself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, that they might join you and the Son in the new heavens and earth. We pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and minds to understand and take in the words of this prophecy, that we might come to know you better and be encouraged by the victory that is ours in Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but this exhortation, which I just read in the book of Revelation, is not addressed to seminarians. It is not a call to endure the rigors of seminary, to keep the commandments of your professors, which you should do, or by keeping faith in your grades. It is, however, addressed to Christians, And not just to Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, but also to the saints of all times and all places. That they too might be blessed by hearing and keeping the words of the prophecy of Revelation. This exhortation in Revelation 14.12 is not given in isolation. On the one hand, that it is a call for endurance implies something that needs to be Endured. At the same time, this endurance is not fruitless. There is something good to come as a result. I wish, therefore, to explain this exhortation in view of two things. First, this exhortation is given in view of the coming judgment. And second, it is given in view of the inevitable victory saints share in Christ. My first point It is given in view of coming judgment. Revelation 14.12 comes immediately after three messages from three angels. And a quick glance at each of these messages shows that each of them portend coming final judgment. The first message comes from an angel with an eternal gospel to preach to all who dwell on the earth from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and people. 
John the seer, however, does not tell us the content of the gospel, at least as this angel gives it. Now we know what this gospel is. John has already told us about the death and resurrection of Christ, about the ascension of the Lamb to the throne, and about redemption of a people from, you guessed it, every tribe, nation, and tongue. John instead tells us what the angel expects is the appropriate response to the gospel. And so the angel says to fear God, give him glory, and worship him. There's nothing wrong with such pleas. In fact, Jesus himself called those to whom he spoke about the kingdom to repent and believe in the gospel. So we read in the beginning of the book of Mark. But we should not deny that there are dire consequences for rejecting the gospel. The angel is well aware of these consequences, which is why he commands these people to do these things, because the hour of judgment has come. If that's true, and if we reject the very gospel which could spare us from condemnation within that time of judgment, then we are doomed to face the full extent of God's wrath. The second message from the second angel declares, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. There's a lot to unpack here, I will only focus on a few things. Some modern scholars argue that since other apocalyptic and Judaic texts use Babylon as a symbol for the Roman Empire, it is likely that the vision of John has the same reference. That is, that Babylon is Rome. There's some truth to that. Like Babylon, the Roman Empire was rampant with idol worship and, at least in Asia Minor, with emperor worship. And these things would be huge temptations for the early Christians, especially since it was common for trade guilds within the Roman Empire to require their members to worship their pet deities in order to remain members and to participate in the economy. The road to economic success in the Roman Empire was paved with idolatry. And the constant temptation of the early church was, like ancient Israel in actual Babylon, to abandon the God who loved them like a husband, and instead to whore themselves to idols that they might survive. It would be a mistake, however, to limit the reference of the image of Babylon only to the Roman Empire. That might be the immediate referent, but it's not the only one, and certainly not the only application of the image. For in every age, economic wealth and success is like a strong wine and illicit sex intoxicating and pleasurable enough to keep coming back to and to secure by any means. So here we are in the 21st century, influenced as we are 
by modernist and postmodernist notions about public life. It is easy to think that in a pluralistic society like ours, that somehow our economy and our economic transactions are ideologically neutral. But is that really the case? Books like the book of Revelation challenge us to rethink that question and to ask ourselves, what is it that drives our public life? Take our own country, for example, and you may perhaps conclude that our economy and the advertisements that bombard us every day are in part driven by notions of self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-fill-in-the-blank, whatever you want to make yourself out to be. And if that's the case, then is not our economy driven by the worship of the individual self. Or maybe you're not driven by individualistic notions, but maybe you respond to messages about fulfillment in a group identity. And that's becoming more common as of late. But either way, you are faced with man-made identities. You end up worshiping either yourself or a group composed purely of other human beings. And you begin to think that your success is dependent on having the money to make your identity a reality. And in doing that, you accept the Babylonian influences of the world around you. The unbeliever, catechized by the world around us, takes these influences in like a drunkard who has lost all control of his senses and has become blind and deaf to the reality around him. And that is what the image of drinking the wine of passion, of sexual immorality, is trying to get at. The third message from the third angel in Revelation 14 reveals to us the reality of those drunk on Babylon's wine. They are those who worship the beast and have received his mark on their foreheads. Now the beast figure has come up already in Revelation, in chapter 13, and we see there that the beast is described as an antichrist figure. He has his own wound, which he uses to deceive the nations into worshiping him. He utters blasphemies, persecutes Christians, and he even has a mark which he uses to brand people so that they cannot even make economic transactions without it. Now, the Greek term used for mark can refer to a few different things, but the most convincing, I think, is that it's an image of a brand which is put on animals or on slaves, marking someone's property. Again, Economic success in the Roman Empire depended in part on one's worship of the emperor and the gods of the trade guilds. But the book of Revelation reveals to us the true power behind such idolatry. And that power is none other than the devil and his unoriginal schemes, which make a mockery of the triune God. 
idolaters of every age, remain under the enslaving power of sin and the devil, whether those idolaters worship statues, themselves, or other people, or their group identity. And these idolaters, those who drink the wine of Babylon, will one day drink a much stronger drink, that of God's wrath. And that's not going to be an enjoyable drink. We are told that the drink of God's wrath is undiluted. It is a drink that is meant to induce vomiting and produce an everlasting hangover. And so, like Sodom and Gomorrah, these idolaters will face the full wrath of God in fire and brimstone. And contrary to popular belief, they won't be eternally separated from God. They will be before the presence of the Lamb, but the Lamb as he is a holy and wrathful judge. That's terrifying. And the call for endurance is given in light of these three messages about judgment. And the devil would want nothing more than for members of the visible church to leave and to give in. But the believer is instead called to see the world around him as it really is. And to endure in obedience and faith. And fortunately, Christ does not leave his people without hope and help. Which brings me to my second point. The exhortation is given in view of the inevitable victory the saints share in Christ. So we come back to Revelation 12. And we see another verse in the immediate context. Following Revelation 12 is verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Notice the Trinitarian pattern of this verse. The beatitude is declared by a voice in heaven. In other words, the Father. The phrase, in the Lord, means something similar to the phrase, in Christ, as it appears in the Pauline epistles. It indicates the mediation of Christ and union in Christ. This verse also mentions the Sabbath rest, or implies it. You will recall that the reward of the covenant of works, which was set out before Adam, was eternal life and Sabbath rest. And this reward of Sabbath rest is promised to those who believe in Christ and who die believing in him, whether they die naturally or die as martyrs. For Christ came to earth to fulfill all the demands of the covenant of works. To die on the cross and take on the punishment we deserve for our sins and rebellion. To earn for us the Sabbath rest, which was originally held out to Adam. And those who die in the Lord will receive that same rest. And finally, in verse 13, you also see that the Spirit says, Indeed, thus confirming the Father's declaration and applying the work of Christ to the believer. 
Now I speak about this because it's easy to take just Revelation 14.12, this call to endurance. It's easy to take that in isolation and to focus on what we are supposed to do for God and forget about what God has done for us, is doing for us, and will do for us. We can easily take it and make it just about our keeping the commandments or our endurance and faith. But we must not forget that behind our deeds lie the declarations of the triune God about who we are in Christ and who the Spirit is making us to be in Christ. Thus, in verse 13, our deeds follow us, not because our deeds are meritorious in themselves, but because they are works done in gratitude for what Christ has already done for us. It's also easy to forget that the perseverance or endurance of the saints, as presented in the book of Revelation, this endurance is grounded in God's election of his people for salvation. Before the messages of the three angels, which is also in chapter 14, we see a vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000. This 144,000 appeared earlier in Revelation, particularly in chapter 7, and there it symbolizes God's elect among those in the present world. In Revelation 14, the 144,000 appear again, only this time with the Lamb on Mount Zion. That is, they are presented as standing in the eschatological New Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to do the math for you to calculate this number and what it means, but it's really not that difficult to calculate. It's divisible by 12. And its significance is also not that difficult. It symbolizes the saints of God of both the Old and New Covenants. It's telling us that God has elected a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and he secures their salvation. And he gives them his own mark, but the mark of his name guaranteeing that they will receive salvation and enter into his presence forever. So we come back to Revelation 14, 12. And we know now that John gave this call to endure in view of both the coming judgment and of the inevitable victory the saints share in Christ. Now, John the seer gives this call to endure not knowing who exactly is among the elect. Nevertheless, if God's election of a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, if that election couldn't truly secure salvation, why give the exhortation? Yes, the visible church will face difficulties in this life, and some in the midst of it will even fall away. And if you think that somehow you as a seminarian are immune from such demonic influence, you have yet to meet those former seminarians who actually did fall away from faith. 
But the book of Revelation also gives us confidence that those whom God has chosen among the peoples of the earth will endure and will join Christ in the new creation and enter into the Sabbath rest that he earned for them. This is the word of God. Join me in prayer. Oh, Father God, we are aware of our inadequacies. We are aware of how weak we are. In the face of forces that seem to us powerful, that catechize us in ways we haven't even yet understood, but yet we are confident that you have sealed us with your name and have sealed us with the Holy Spirit and have guaranteed for us our salvation in Christ, that you hold out to us Sabbath rest, which Christ has earned for us in his life, death, and resurrection. We are thankful that the lamb who was slain now stands at the throne and that he is watching over us and tells us of his victory over these forces of evil. We pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would help us to see the world around us as it really is. And that on the one hand, you would help us to remain in it, but on the other hand, not to become of it. That you would continually remind us of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that you would grant us the grace needed to endure in obedience and faith, in the hope that we will inherit the promised eternal life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.